Hi, I'm Michael. I'm a small business owner, improv artist, bitmanic, and always looking for something new and interesting. I am a TV host and your host for what we call the Second Scene Podcast, a dweebs global production where we interview people you know about things that they're not necessarily known for. I'm here today with Izzy Lapidus, whose first scene is her work in the STEM community and her passion for women in science, while her second scene is broader to the theater. So thanks for being here, Izzy. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Really excited to be here today. Yes, I've been, I've been looking forward to talking to you. So I think right away, I want you to tell people what STEM is. Awesome. All right. Well, STEM uh, is an acronym. It stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when STEM was actually coined, but uh, these four disciplines really overlap with one another. Um, so when we talk about science, uh, you know, I often, you know, say science and STEM pretty interchangeably, unless I'm referring to something specific within the science community versus something specific within the technology community. Okay. Um, yeah, I hear, I hear STEM all the time because I have 10 and 8-year-old boys. And it's always like the big thing, the STEM camps or the STEM programs, or I put him in a programming class uh, during COVID where he was uh, learning basic programming for games. And that was, a, that was STEM. Yeah. So yes. it seems like they use STEM like very broadly. Right. Yes. It is often used pretty broadly. <laughs> what is your, what is your focus? So my focus is within S, within science. Um, I grew up uh, with dreaming of being an astrophysicist. I discovered my passion for astrophysics when I was about eight or nine years old when I was at the American Museum of Natural History's planetarium where I stared up at the projected cosmos and thought to myself, wow, people actually spend their whole lives studying the universe? Well, count me in. And I basically spent my entire childhood dreaming of becoming an astrophysicist. Um, and actually at that same museum, I was so lucky to about nine years later conduct my own astrophysics research under a postdoc um, within the astrophysics research department at the museum. So it kind of went full circle there. Oh, how cool. How cool that it brought you back to, to the place that inspired you the most. Yeah. <laughs> what was it? Was it the cosmos, uh, the, the dreaming of what's out there, aliens? Like what, what brought yeah, you back? Um, that's a great question. Well, um, a couple months prior to my first planetarium visit, I'm walking with my mom. I, I grew up in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I still live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And I'm walking with my mom and I notice that there's this car that's moving abnormally quickly for my small neighborhood. And so I comment on it like a scientist does, right? I make an observation and I say to my mom, wow, that car is moving really fast. And my mom um, was not involved in the STEM community herself, but her father was a biophysicist. So she grew up with this scientific lens uh, just within her, within her home. And so she responds to me by saying, well, fast is only relative to what you're comparing it to. And it was for the first time in my life that I began to really think about my surroundings and question the ways that different things interact with one another. And it was really that same curiosity just for my surroundings that took to uh, the stars when I was at the planetarium. So I think that, you know, I've always been a really curious kid, still consider myself to be a really curious young adult. Um, and the universe is just filled with so, so many unanswered questions. So many questions that we probably will never get the true answers to, but that search, that, that desire to learn more um, has always really fascinated me. Got you. Yeah, it's, it's odd for a kid to question something like that at such a young age is, is uh, it's deep. <laughs> it's definitely different. 
and definitely such a privilege that I was able to discover my passion for STEM at such a young age. You know, I grew up in New York City, so there's so many opportunities that have been around me, not necessarily specifically targeting exposing girls to STEM, but I definitely think of it being an, an immense privilege that I had access to such an incredible museum, you know, so close to me where there was whole exhibits on space, whereas, you know, a lot of kids don't get to grow up with such an amazing resource so close to them. Yeah, between New York, I, I'm guessing you come to DC to our museums here as well, because we yeah. have some incredible, between, I, I lived in New York for 12 years, I also live in DC, and the, the museums that they offer are just unmatched like around the world, so it's, it's pretty wild. Was it, it wasn't known as STEM though, when you were younger, I'm guessing, when did STEM even, the, the term and the push for it even come into play? That's a good question. Um, I don't know the exact answer. I think I definitely started hearing the term STEM probably not till I was about 14 years old. Um, I think growing up, my I didn't I didn't necessarily realize that STEM was a whole kind of branch, but I was always very interested in these other letters too. I loved math. I was, uh, you know, in my fifth grade class, we had tables one through six for, you know, kind of the highest level of math being the people who sat at table six. And in fifth grade, I took a lot of pride in the fact that I was placed at table six in my math class. And um, in fifth grade, I was also, I got my first Kindle Fire HD, which was my first tablet that I ever had. And I was just like, totally obsessed with it, but then I really wanted it to actually be an Android tablet, but you know, how's a 10 year old with not making any income gonna just go and get, you know, a new tablet and my parents didn't wanna buy me an Android tablet. So I actually found a way to hack into the Kindle Fire HD software and download some third party apps so that when I was able to click an app on my home screen, it completely transformed the entire user interface into that of an Android tablet. So I think that, you know, I'm telling that because as much as I've always, you know, considered my my main focus within STEM to be astrophysics growing up, it's really been, um, I've really had a real interest in all of the different letters and the ways in which they interact with one another. Okay, you remind me of myself a bit. When I was your age, we didn't have Kindle Fires, but we had, I had a Palm Pilot. Nobody else had a Palm Pilot. I don't even know if you know what that is. Yeah, I have not was, heard of that. It was a handheld with no backlight and it was just green screen and I pretty much played like a uh, Mindstorms on it. I don't know if you know that it's it's not even Mindstorms, something else below Minds. And uh, yeah, I hacked into that. And every like I, I spent 10, 15 years hacking into different devices and, and having fun like that. So I completely yeah, get fun. you. It's addicting. You, you it is. see what you can do with it. Totally, totally. Mold it to yours. I know it's kind of uh, spoken that women aren't uh, a majority in STEM or in science. Is that still the case, or is that just something that we're we're told just because that's the way it was before right well i would say that uh it is the stem community is definitely still male dominated i'd say that a huge reason for this is that girls are not exposed to stem from a young age or women role models you know that's why i think of my story as such a privileged one that i was exposed to stem from a young age and although i didn't necessarily have uh women stem role models to look up to I did have my mom who constantly encouraged me all throughout my childhood that I could be whatever the heck I wanted to be, whether that be an astrophysicist or a lawyer or what she was a lawyer or, you know, whatever other uh, 
interest that I had, I was always encouraged. And because my interest was that of astrophysics, she just said yes and yes and yes. Um, so throughout my whole childhood, I was super encouraged to pursue STEM. But, you know, that started when I was about eight. If we go back a year before, I'm about seven. My best friend told me that she wanted to be a scientist when I when she grew up. And I laughed in her face because the idea of a girl growing up to be a scientist before I had ever come in contact with science or any female scientist myself was just completely unheard of. And I remember, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I had this image of like a crazy mad scientist type figure um, that still pertains uh, as what we think of as a scientist today. And it's definitely changing, you know, I'm lucky to be a part of these changing statistics of women in STEM, but there's this, there's a real difference with how girls versus boys approach STEM. Boys are kind of going to STEM with this confidence that they don't really necessarily need that extra validation or need to be seeing a, you know, male scientist because that's just what it is, right? And for girls, uh, there's a much bigger need to feel encouraged because we're not right off the bat. So um, I think that, you know, it's, it's not fair to say that, you know, women are in the same place that they were 20 years ago, but there's still a lot of work that has to be done to really make the STEM community a truly inclusive place for both um, women and men. What are you doing right now or what can we do to encourage more women and young, young girls to get into STEM? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the biggest part or what I view now as kind of my duty as someone, you know, I'm 18 now, I wouldn't say that I'm I'm more of a young woman in STEM rather than a girl in STEM so much. So a lot of what I do is try to be a role model to other girls. And you know, a lot of the work that I do is sharing my own STEM story to show that you do not need to get the best grades in the class, that you will probably have teachers that will say no to you, that won't believe in you, boys that won't believe in you, right? But that if you have that passion, that is so much more powerful than anything else. It is my passion that has enabled me to conduct research on brown dwarfs as a high schooler to actually discover a brown dwarf 66 light years away at, when I was 17 years old. That's crazy, right? I wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you about that. How do you discover yeah. a star? Like what is, what do you do? Just yeah, so this, this, I have no this clue. Was, telescope pointing at the sky. But. Right. So uh, basically during my senior year of high school, I held an internship at the American Museum of Natural History, as I mentioned before, um, within a program called SHRIMP, which is the science research mentoring program that pairs juniors and seniors, if you get into it, with uh, researchers at the museum, either in the physical sciences or the life sciences. So I was um, mentored up with a woman named Johanna Voss, who was a postdoc uh, at, in, within the astrophysics department um, at the museum. And what we were doing were analyzing images of brown dwarfs. So brown dwarfs are these really cool celestial objects that kind of take up this middle area between planets and stars. And we were looking at data. What, what does that mean in between planets and stars? Like what is- um, As in like mass wise. Um, so we know a lot about planets and we know a lot about stars, but we don't know so much about like the celestial objects that fall mass wise in the middle between them. So what's cool about brown dwarfs is by studying brown dwarfs, we're actually able to learn even more information about both planets and stars. Um, is, and, it just, you know, is it just a gassy being? Is it just like a gassy Group yeah, so they have a lot of like in terms of uh, atmospheres, temperatures, radii, a lot of similar properties 
to that of planets, which is really cool because right now, right, we want to be looking for life on other planets. We want to be understanding what planets are like outside of our solar system. So planets outside of our solar system are called exoplanets. And actually the first uh, discovery of an exoplanet was announced at the same conference, the first discovery of a brown dwarf was announced at. So they have a lot of really interesting similarities. Um, so what we were doing was we were looking for brown dwarf binaries, which are basically when it's two brown dwarfs orbiting one another. Um, so basically, in order to do this, we had to create our own code in Python. And that's how I was saying earlier that, you know, the letters of STEM are really, really connected. You can't really do science without being able to code because you often need uh, programming skills to be able to analyze your data. Um, Python, so, is, Python is a language, it's a, it's a newer language that a lot of people are using right now, and it really gives yes. a lot of flexibility. Um, Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's used commonly um, within the scientific community. A, a popular language that's a little bit more outdated now is R, um, but Python is more of like an updated version of R and it's just more user friendly, just kind of, you know, the, the syntax is easier to work with. So that's why we were using Python. Um, and we basically created our own code in Python. Uh, and what this code did was it went through these images of these brown dwarf binary candidates. So we, there was this data taken from the VLT, which stands for the Very Large Telescope. Yes, apparently astronomers are not the most creative with their titling. Um, and it was data taken in 2013 by this guy named Ben Pope, who was looking for brown dwarf binaries, took all this data and then didn't do anything with it. So there's been this data sitting around that has not been analyzed for seven years. And my mentor, Johanna, was actually at a conference with Ben Pope and they were talking and he was talking about how he took all his data and how he didn't do anything with it. So Johanna was like, wait, can I have it? Can I use that with my, with my shrimps students? Um, and he was like, yeah, sure. So that's basically what we did. Um, and so we had to create our own code that would basically, when you take an image from a telescope, there's kind of a lot of stuff on the image that you don't want there. So what we call is we have bad pixels. So that's just when there's like these little just like black circles that make it really difficult to see what the image actually took an image of. So when basically all of these images, what we were looking for was if there was two objects in them, because if there was two objects in them, that means that we had discovered a binary. But what what's on these images? Is it just dust that's in the way or is it just um, yeah, like dust or like sometimes, you know, you'll take and you'll try to take a telescope image and like light gets in there that you don't want there. So most of what the code did was just get rid of everything that was ugly so that we could have the best shot at actually seeing what was in our image. Okay, so she had the shrimps. Why'd she call you guys the shrimps? So the re the program is called the Science Research Mentoring Program. So that stand. So we say shrimp, and then we're just like the shrimp students. Um, <laughs> but sometimes they call us the shrimpies too. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, brown dwarf binaries. What is what is putting the word binary on the end of it? So binary just means two, right? So with a brown a brown dwarf binary, it's not one, but it's two brown dwarfs, and they're orbiting each other. Um, and all of these images, there, there was either one or two objects, right? There was either, it either was a binary or it wasn't a binary. Um, and it was through our code that we were able to decipher 
by getting rid of all the bad pixels so that we could really see, well, are there one or two objects that were taken here? Um, and it was actually the object 2M2351 that I was analyzing that turned out to be a binary. So this was actually really hilarious because normally when you're coding, the last thing you want is an error. But in our case, it was through an error that we were able to to find that we had a binary because our code had actually only been set up to target one object, but because we had found a binary, there were two objects. So it was really funny. I'm, I'm in the middle of coding and I was sitting next to Johanna and I get this huge error and I'm like, Johanna, I don't I keep getting an error here. I don't know what to do. And she's like, oh, that's because there's two objects. And I'm like, what? Like, you mean like we found a binary? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a huge deal. So I like show my, I show my other, you know, my other two um, partners in within our group and we're all like freaking out. And then we actually look up the object because it's not like we had basically this object 2M2351 was known to astronomers. So we were able to search that, that name within an astronomy database. And we got a bunch of just different information on it. And we saw that the last person to actually write about this object was another astronomer at the museum who happened to be there right now. So we actually brought my computer downstairs and went, and her name was Daniela. We went and showed Daniela and we were like, hey, you, you said that this wasn't a binary, but uh, look at this. And she's like, oh my God, yep, you guys, that's a binary. I was wrong, you guys found a binary. So this was like crazy, this happened in February. Um, and then we basically spent the rest of, my internship lasted until June. We basically spent the rest of, our time together, looking for more information that we can find from those databases. We calculated some stuff that I don't really, just a bunch of complicated math stuff that we were eventually able to determine that uh, the distance from uh, object A to object B, which is what we had discovered, was about 8 AU, which is about the same distance that uh, Jupiter is from the sun. So for a little comparable distance there. And uh, the whole system is about 66 light years from us to the sun. I mean, from 66 light years from us to the object. And that is basically like going from earth to the, to the sun about 1,500 times. Right around the corner. So yeah, right there. That's wonderful. There was another woman, uh, woman scientist. Yeah, yeah. So we actually got to, we got to rank, you know, we had a bunch of different scientists that we could choose from, you know, that we most wanted to, to work with. And I put Johanna first um, because she is super young. She's like in her 20s, maybe early 30s, young woman from Ireland. And I was like, if I can, that's exactly the type of person that I'd like to conduct research under. So I was really lucky to get to work with her. That's wonderful. And the, the person, the woman who originally found the star too, that was a different woman, correct? Yeah. So she didn't, she didn't discover uh, the, the brown dwarf, but she had talked about it in a paper refuting it as a brown dwarf binary, which was funny because we confirmed that it actually was a brown dwarf binary. Um, right. but, but yeah, it was so cool. How do you, okay. So you, the, the star was named 2M2351B and yeah. I'm guessing that's how it, how did you name it that or how does it get that name because then you must have crushed somehow you found the same star that she did how'd you know that i'm guessing it's based so on so basically we were told uh in advance like when we were looking when i was looking at this image i was told that it was an image of 2m2351 
What we did was we, redef we, we redefined it, right? Because now we know that, okay, it's not one, but two objects, which means we need to call one of them 2M2351A and the other 2M2351B. So we say that we discovered 2M2351B. Unfortunately, we couldn't name it anything more exciting because the it, it, it's it wasn't like we discovered the entire system. What we what we discovered was that it just was more than one object. I got you. So how does this mix with your theater? How did you want to be a scientist and uh, an actress? Yeah. So. I have always loved to be in the spotlight. My parents figured that out about me from a very young age. So I started acting when I was about eight years old, um, around the same time that I did discover my interest uh, in astrophysics. And I was acting outside of school for about two to three years. And then when it came to applying to middle school, uh, you know, I really liked acting. I, I never really thought about wanting to be an actor, but my parents and I knew that it was something that I liked. So I applied to middle school. I applied to a, a performing arts middle school and I got in and I attended there. So I spent a lot of middle school uh, within the theater talent as we called it there. And then I still really liked acting as throughout middle school went. Um, I would say in middle school, I was not nearly as involved in the STEM community as I am now. So once again, you know, it's kind of when you're when you're 12, I guess you're not, I mean, at least I wasn't super thinking about my career. I just, I knew I liked astrophysics. I knew in school that I was acting and that's about as far as my thinking went. Um, but then in eighth grade, I was applying to high schools and LaGuardia is one of the best, uh, it is the best uh, performing arts school in the country, um, especially for acting. So I applied to LaGuardia. I really wanted to go to LaGuardia. I ended up getting in and I go to LaGuardia. Um, and a lot of people who go to LaGuardia for drama want to be actors. And right from the get-go, I was very loud and proud about the fact that I did not want to be an actor, that I, I loved acting. I've kind of, my, my kind of phrase my whole life has been that acting teaches you how to be a person and that it teaches you how to empathize. It teaches you how to know yourself. It teaches you what to do when you don't know kind of what to do with, with your thoughts, your emotions, where we were taught different techniques for journaling, different ways of centering ourselves, mindfulness, all of the stuff that really goes into being a good actor, you can totally extract and just use to better yourself as a human being. So that was a lot of what um, kind of how acting was a part of my life without me wanting to be an actor. But for most of my my high school experience, it was very separate from my, my passion for astrophysics because for the most, for most of high school, my life plan was to become an astrophysicist, to become a professor and do research on, you know, as well. And that was that. It didn't really have this deeper passion to be a leader within the STEM community, to be a role model for other girls in STEM. And because of that, I didn't really, just acting didn't really play in so much to there wasn't a real way for them to connect so much whereas now you know I've started to share my stem story loud and proud that's now what I'm really known for for being this person this role model within the stem community and so much of the reason why I'm able to talk about myself why I'm able to talk about my research in a way that doesn't sound like the scariest craziest thing in the world is because of my background in theater that I'm taught 
I've been taught, I've spent years learning how to connect with people, learning how to feel proud. I'd say that it's been so much in my background in theater that has allowed me to just be confident. And so much of STEM is having that inner confidence, right? That, you know, my, my background in theater without me really realizing it has fostered my ability to stick with STEM because I've had this belief in myself that I can be here, that I deserve to be here, that I'm smart enough to be here despite the world maybe telling me otherwise. You're gonna, if you ever wanted to, you'd make an awesome professional coach uh, for young women or even men. I mean, you, you really have that energy about you and that positivity. Thank you. Well, that's really, really great to hear. I'd say that, you know, the thing that I am told most, I, I gave my first uh, talk where I talked about my research on July 5th this year um, at the Girl Genius Conference, which was a really cool virtual event that reached like almost 3,000 plus girls in STEM worldwide. It was incredible. And I got to share my, my research and a little bit about myself and my STEM story to an audience of about 350 people. So it was my first time speaking and, you know, I was, I was nervous, but it was the exact same feeling I'd get before I go on stage for the first time. And just that feeling of the excitement, definitely a little nervousness in there, but just so much excitement. Um, it was a very familiar feeling. And what I realized, what I learned from that is that sure, my research is cool. Sure, you know, my, my, maybe they think I'm smart or whatever, but what I really bring to the table is my energy and my motivation and my belief in you that if you want to do STEM, you absolutely can. So that's definitely much more the message that I'm trying to tell rather than make myself seem like this, like, crazy STEM genius, which is not what I am. I am a girl with passion that wants to share that passion and believes that anyone can take that passion and utilize it too. You seem to know yourself well, because you come across exactly like you want to come across. So I definitely do. Do you want to get do more with theater or you just want to use what you what you've gathered from it to, to push yeah. that? Um, well, I've, you know, in quarantine, I think a lot of us have been thinking a lot about what they want, what we want to do with our lives. Um, and there have definitely been some new ideas, you know, I would love to have my own science show or science segment, or do stuff where I'm, you know, able to talk about science in a way either that is specifically targeting young girls and making or young kids in general, I guess, but just making STEM seem not so scary. Um, but also, I think that, you know, theater can play into doing interviews and I'd love to do interviews with women in STEM. So I, I see no future in which my background in theater won't directly impact the work that I do in the STEM community. I'd say in terms of putting on plays, that's not really the, the direction that I'm interested in moving in or continuing in, but who knows, maybe, maybe when I actually get to campus, um, I'm doing, I'm, I go to Barnard College. I'm, I'm a freshman right now, but I'm on, it's online. So maybe when I actually get to Barnard, I'll get involved with the theater community. But as you can probably tell, I do know myself pretty well. And I don't really see that being what I choose to do with my time. But I'm in no way saying goodbye to theater. And I have so much love, especially for the LaGuardia Drama Department. They have given me so much more than just theater training. You know, I really consider all those people to be my family. So I think that um, maybe it won't be plays necessarily, but the, the theater world is nowhere leaving my 
for, for every reason you've mentioned, I think everyone should take some type of theater. I, I started improv two and a half years ago and it changed my life in so many different ways, just with confidence oh, yeah. speaking, confidence in different situations, knowing, like you said, you, you figure out how to carry yourself in situations where you, you wouldn't know before or know how you appear. I, I really do say that theater is like my secret weapon that is so much the reason why I'm able to do everything that I now do within the STEM community in particular. Oh, that's great. That's great. How is it in freshman year of college with COVID and you can't go to college? That was one of my favorite years of my life. Like, yeah. Um, I'd say that it is pretty, pretty tough. Um, I'm now doing better than I have been the past couple months or so. I'd say that the past few months have probably been the worst that my mental health has ever been. I'm a very social human being and it is so hard to be at home and to not be meeting new people and just having a normal college life. I'm, you know, I, I love school and I love learning and learning over Zoom is just nowhere near like learning in the classroom so i think that i'm there's you know i there's things that have come out of this i have a lot of plans for how i want to use my time more intentionally next semester where as of right now we're still supposed to continue being online at least freshmen are um and i'm trying to trying to do the best that i possibly can here but i'd say that you know it's 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 so not what i wanted it's no one wants this i don't think I know anyone who's particularly loving this online experience, um, but I'm still learning new things. I probably learned more for, in my classes than I like actual education that I probably have ever gotten. So I'd say that academically speaking, my classes are fascinating um, and it's great to be able to take classes that directly relate to what I'm passionate about. I'm taking my freshman seminar is called Think Like a Scientist from Plato to Hawking. Um, and we're basically reading and analyzing and critiquing the works of different ancient philosophers and like kind of our first scientists. Um, and it's gonna be going into more present day and we're reading Einstein soon. And I love Einstein one of my one of my role models for sure and the class itself you know it's it's super me so it's great that i'm still able to take classes that so relate to exactly what it is that i'm interested in okay do you think that the the remote learning is a necessity right now and something that i think that that's a tough question i'm basically the only one of my friends from the drama department at LaGuardia at least that is in school they're all on gap years um and I'd say that's really hard too because they're all right around me and not in school so it kind of makes it feel like well what am I doing here I mean I honestly it's hard to even think of myself as in college I more think of myself as taking college classes um and I think that you know I I've there was a point a couple of weeks ago I was thinking about taking next semester off and not taking doing school, but I think something that is nice about having classes is that it provides some structure to this incredibly unstructured time. And I think that, you know, my seminar class is my favorite class because it's only 16 people. So it has the most small community Barnard feeling, whereas my other classes have 50 or 100 people in them. So I'm like not able to be my talkative Izzy self at all, which this, I do not enjoy that. So I think that next semester, I'm going to really try to take classes that are smaller so I can be more a part of the classroom, this virtual classroom. Um, and I don't think, I think that you can be 
having a decent experience not being in online school right now too. I, but I just think that overall, this is a really hard time for everybody, regardless of what it is that you're spending every day doing. So it's really a matter of whatever it is you decide to do, take online classes or not take online classes, really trying to use your days in the most intentional manner and find ways of making yourself happy in a really not happy time we're all trying to do that's <laughs> so what we're all we're all trying to do what an interesting time and what an interesting time to be young and going through this too totally. hopefully we're all through a good uh, well and good in the next year and uh back to normal and you can start enjoying yes your i'm really hoping that fall 2021 feels like real life again it's going to it's going to we all have to believe it's going to well, I want to thank you so much. This has been incredibly interesting. And I think you're a super inspiring person and you're going to motivate uh, thousands of young women to get into STEM. And I think you're going to do so much more. So it was an honor speaking to you. And really seriously, you have a, an incredible future ahead of you. Thank you so, so much. This was so awesome. I'm really glad that I got to talk to you. Um, and yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. So check out Izzy Lipidus at uh, www.izzylipidus.com. That's I-Z-Z-Y-L-A-P-I-D-U-S.com. And you do speaking engagements and you're yeah. available. Okay, great. Yeah. And, if and I'm definitely, definitely most active on Instagram. So that's just at Izzy Lapidus. Um, and if anyone is interested in DMing me, I respond to DMs super quick. Maybe you need some advice or just want someone to hype you up. I'm always here for it. So yes. All right, great. Well, and if anyone needs more no-nonsense advice or free one-on-one -on -one mentorship in any area, resume writing to mental health, send a contact request at dweebsglobal.org and we will pair you with a mentor. Uh, thank you again, Izzy. So much fun. And everyone else, tune in next Tuesday for another super interesting, fun guest. Bye. Bye.